Are we doing another superhero movie this week? No, no, we're going to switch it up. We're doing something different this week. Oh, thank God. If we had to do another podcast about a superhero movie, I was going to kill somebody. Well, that's funny you actually say that, because if you did, you might actually end up in our next movie that we're doing. Oh, what's that? We are going to do the Shawshank Redemption. Well, call me Red and grab your popcorn. Welcome to Grab Your Popcorn. I'm your host, Brian Crock. Along with me is, of course, David Kalisa. Woohoo! Hello again, everybody. Yes, so it's back to just the two of us today. We don't have anybody else in the studio. So it's back to the core crew. Okay, which is fine with me. You know, we, we had some fun the last few weeks, and uh, we've definitely gone over a lot of material, but feel like you know we had to get back to this but if you like the crew uh we will be having them back again one more time to go through the review of endgame coming next week so uh we just had to get some logistics in order get everybody together uh but yeah we will have we will have everybody back again so we can go through the the final film of yes. the this marvel cinematic uh, it, it felt right line. you know we we went through the whole bracket together and whatnot we all had our separate expectations of it and everything and i am excited to hear everyone's opinion about it yes yes but today we are doing quite possibly not even quite possibly it is one of the best movies ever made oh yes it is uh, uh i believe it is still on imdb's top 100 movies to watch Yes. And uh, it is a uh, cult classic now by today's standards. It has a 9.3 rating on IMDb. Which is stellar if you at all follow ratings on IMDb. They are Mm -hmm. actually pretty solid. They aren't skewed in the very least. Mm -mm. And uh, for it being uh, an older movie, it, uh, it still holds true to this day. Definitely, just, definitely just to point out, its guns up. Just to point out to you, The Godfather has a 9.2 rating. <laughs> so it has a point one less. Higher. Than, no, no, I mean, I'm saying uh, Godfather has oh, a point yes. one less. Uh, but yes, it's this <clears> is <throat> one of those movies that like when you're flipping through channels and you all of a sudden, you, you, you see that prison, you see one of the actors, like you're just like, okay, I'm watching this now. Yeah, it doesn't matter where you come in at, no matter what chapter, how far into it, you're going to watch to the end. But it's just, it is such a fascinating film, like, to watch. The soundtrack is incredible, too. Oh, absolutely. But, but uh, here's here's what I want to get into, and it took me a good long while to actually find this one out. I mean, like, it, years and years ago, but, like, I'd already seen the movie numerous times before I finally watched it one more time and realized that the entire story was a Stephen King story. Yes, Absolutely. And I was like, holy cow, like, what is that? And so then I went back and I read, like, the the collection that it was with because it was, it was a novella. Mm-hmm. And so they released it as a book with a couple of other novellas. And the original title was Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. Right. Which is sort of a long, drawn-out title. It's like, and it's not, it doesn't really grab your attention. No, me, but. no. And, uh, and some people might get the, you know, wrong impression. They might actually think Rita Hayworth has an actual, like, pivotal role, which she kind of does, but not in the way that you would think. Yeah, no, she definitely, uh, <laughs> definitely does not have that. But uh, the story was was originally deve- developed or written by Stephen King mm-hmm. a, as a short story, and it's one of his few non horror stories. He he's definitely written some, and and so this is what he did with drama, which makes me think that like this man could probably write practically anything anyway. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Next thing you know, it's like you're gonna find out that he's like been writing some of the hit comedies over the it's like or, or a musical. Stephen he, he wrote Grease. <laughs> Stephen King wrote The Hangover. Like, what? So uh, um, before we also get uh, too far into this, I will also uh, do a special shout out. To you. We are doing this movie specifically because a, a very long good friend of ours, Mitch Self. Um, requested us to do this movie. Oh yeah, and uh, he uh, he's been following the podcast since me and you took it over, and I felt it was only right to kind of you know do a little special one for uh, one of our dedicated. Hey Mitch, have you built that Gundam yet? No, Dang no, it. I don't believe so. Because I was supposed to be like the test pilot. And yeah, I wanted to do that, but I mean, you know what? 
You let me know, dude. We're still young. Mitch, you let me know when that happens. I will gladly fly your giant robot. So, and uh, not only was he able to request this, he also has uh, sent us over a uh, nice little addendum, per se, and a little breakdown of uh, what he thinks of the film and some key points, which we will pl- try to plug in as we go. But uh, we will definitely uh, plug in his score that he gave at the end of it. And uh, this one's for you, Mitch. Yes. So... uh Here's something else that I would actually really like to to get into as far as this movie goes. What? So I, I kind of want to throw this, like normally we go through plot synopsis and then we do all of this other stuff, like where we talk about like the actors and we talk about the background and stuff like that. I don't really think that we necessarily have to go through the plot synopsis because so many people have seen this movie already. They already know it inside and out. So it's like, I don't really think that yeah. it's necessary to hit a lot of the plot points. This isn't in game. We don't have to worry about spoilers right now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but... I just, there's so much to, to the backstory of this movie and how it got made and like what happened after that, that just kind of blows my mind. Like, uh, the guy who, who wrote and directed it had done like student films before and he took, took a small, like short story of Stephen King's and made like a little student movie out of it. And Stephen King loved it. And so like the director then came back and was like, I want to take Shawshank and I want to turn it into a movie. And he was just like, Okay, sure. Why not? Like, here, wow. do, your, do your thing. Like, and it was seriously like that simple. And uh, so they they go through this en- entire process. He he writes the script, and they said that it was like the most complete script writing that like has ever been done. In that, like, he wrote the script, and that is pretty much essentially what ended up on screen. Wow, that's impressive. Like, not a lot of changes like happened from the script to the actual like production. And you know what? And it's awesome to think that because you can't imagine the film any other way. Yeah. But some of the bigger changes in the story were actually uh, the fact that there were like there were three wardens and they all got condensed down into one like supremely bad warden. Ah, but you just merged the wardens, just merged them all. Uh, And then, of course, the other major change was red. I wonder what that change was. Red was supposed to be a tall, white Irish man. <laughs> so I guess that's why the joke so ended up when, in the movie. He's like, why do they call you red? It's like, probably because I'm Irish. <laughs> like, that's the joke because they just didn't change the script as well. They were like, no, that's just funny. Like, that, that, it is in. hilarious. Leave it in. It's like, why not? It's it's one of the, you know, little one-liners that snuck its way in there. It gives you a good yes, chuckle when he yes, says it. Yes. Especially because it comes from Morgan Freeman. Uh, but so... As as where do you want to start with this now? Like, because the like I can go through through more of the backstory, how everything got set up, how they they got the actors and whatnot, and uh, I mean we can kind of do like a little merger per se, or like a, you know me do a middle ground. I can kind of go you, through the movie a little bit, yeah, like some go, of the plot points, go and ahead then you and, can and you can plug your backstory into it. Sounds good to me. Go go through some of the, so, the major plot. So I mean you know the, we don't get much of a beginning. Uh, you know you start off with Andy's trial, and um, it's a it's basically, you know, a uh, a montage, as it will, or as it were, of, uh, you know, things that had, you know, gone on and, you know, kind of like what they're describing in the trial and basically how he ends up in Shawshank. And you, you don't get anything out of him. You don't get any words out of Andy until, you know, probably a good half hour, 45 minutes into the film. Yeah. And it's brought up, you know, that he's, you know, to himself and everything like that. And plus he's this, you know, straight-laced, white-collar banker that has just ended up in one of the harder prisons of you know the the East Coast. Yes. So you're you get, you get because more, he was he was a uh, convicted of murdering his wife and her, her lover. lover. Yep. Yes. So you know he, he goes from banker to double murder convict in a matter of hours. Yeah. So you get more prison backstory and you get more prisoner development than you do a main character development, which I thought was a really kind of excellent way to shoot the film because more usually you, you know, most films are, you know, that follow the whatever main characters, you get a lot of what, you know, is going on with them and, you know, how they got there or whatever like that. Mm-hmm. So he arrives in the prison and everything like that. He goes through the horrible, horrible process of, you know, new prison uh, intake and everything like that. And then you you get uh, this crazy shot of the first night in prison, which is one of the probably like top violent scenes of the film. Mm -hmm. And uh, you also get to see like the wardens enforcer in full effect and just how 
crooked this guy really is and just doesn't give a damn because he thinks he's fully protected because of who yeah. he is. And, I mean, even um, the warden's speech in the beginning is just weirdly eerie. Oh, absolutely. It's, when he's it's just short, like, I direct, believe in two things, the, discipline and, and the, the Bible. Bible, and you'll get both here. Yeah, like, and it's like, holy shit. <laughs> like, and, then, and then he's like, uh, he's like, trust, trust in the Lord. He's like, but your ass belongs to me. <laughs> like, like oh, oh, God. No, it's, it's like this. And you, you might think like in the beginning that, you know, okay, I guess he's a hard man, but he's a just man, you know, because he believes in the Bible. No. God, no. No. He, he, he is, is a horrible human being. He is. He is as crooked as a sickle on the communist flag. So, uh, you, you know, you get, you get some very, you know, you know, pivotal points in there. Great character development. But once again, nothing out of the main character. He is silent. And then all of a sudden he finally, you know, musters up the, the courage to finally ask for something and whatnot from Red. And you get the first interaction between the, the two leads of the film. Uh, mm-hmm. which are Tim Robbins, of course, and Morgan Freeman, two very well-known uh, big actors in Hollywood. And uh, they kind of befriend each other and, and start their their long line of friendship in this film uh, with that one scene out, out in the yard. Yeah. And then, um, then it kind of dives into a little bit more of Andy's daily life and everything like that. And it's really great because this whole the whole film, like or at least key points, are, are narrated by Red. Which is also kind of a, a neat thing to do because it's and once it, again not it has become a trope yeah. because of this movie, right? It, it, like Morgan Freeman's voice, the that, narrator, that soothing narrating voice that could literally narrate anything, you know, from the Bible to the end of the world destruction and everything like that. Yeah. So it is. It's just all around like this kind of like what's going to happen mm-hmm. slash mystery slash you know, feel good, but it's also a prison film. So it's got a lot of really great elements to it. Speaking of that, uh, if you didn't know the, the prison that was used is in Ohio. Okay. It was a state penitentiary and it had been in use for more than a hundred years of which the director described it as a combination of, uh, a, like the castle of Frankenstein and a church, like a cathedral. He's like, it is equal parts cathedral and Frankenstein's castle. <laughs> that is a scary combination. That's exactly what it is. And if you actually look <laughs> into the history of that place, it was shut down for cruel and inhumane practices against prison or prison inmates. Wow. Uh, and so they shut it down because of the sheer amount of bad things that were happening from from the guards and into the prisoners and, and like... It it was some nightmarish stuff. So literally, it was the perfect place to shoot this movie. Yes, and <laughs> and and as as uh, as Clancy Brown actually said, you know, he goes, it was a monument to man's like horrible nature against himself, and he said, and we stayed there for four months. Wow. Yeah, and in fact, even the guys who who were cast as as prisoners in there, they said when they they all arrived and then like ended up you know, being transported in because they, they would go by bus and stuff. He goes, it honestly felt like you were going to prison. Like this is the place that you were going to be stuck in. He said, cause it was like out in the middle of nowhere. Right. He's like, and so you just sort of all get bust in and then there you are. You're now all prison inmates. <laughs> like this is, this is what you're stuck with. I could not imagine how unnerving that would be, but yeah. it's also, that's also really good. Cause I can only imagine that just kind of built upon the, the, you know, emotion of the set that that was needed you know, mm-hmm. to do the shots and everything like that. So yes. that's a, that's really neat. So, you know, we, we get this befriendment and whatnot, and we get to the first key point that, like, Andy really starts to kind of come into himself with using his out-of-world experience into the prison world, and uh, that's uh, during the roof and, uh, you know, the tarring of the roof scene. Yes. And uh, which is... Really unnerved. The first time you watch it, it's a, it's a little bit of a white knuckler scene because you honestly don't know what the hell is going to happen. Yeah, and because uh, some bad stuff has already happened to Andy, like yeah. like through this dealing with the sisters and stuff like that. Yeah, and, and uh, pr- but, typical prison stuff that you would hear. But um, I, I feel that like you don't know where the drama is going, right? And so I mean, they could really mess him up right there. Exactly. So he he sticks his neck out, and you know, in a very you know, as, as Mitch, you know, told me when he, you know, he stuck his neck out in a very kind of unorthodox way. He just walks up behind these guards who have shotguns, 
you know, like unannounced or whatever like that because he's been yeah. eavesdropping and, uh, you know, offers his assistance to help the, the warden's main guard, to, you know, keep some of the money that he's been given and whatnot. And he's he, he's doing this whole entire pitch while being held off the side of the roof. He starts the conversation like in one of the dumbest ways possible. He's like, "Do, <laughs> do you, you trust, trust your, your wife? wife?" Yeah. <laughs> like, what do you mean? Do I trust my wife? Like, like we have guns and we're on top of a building. It's like I can literally throw you off of this thing and say that you tripped, there's, and nobody will say otherwise. There's 30 ways for you to die today. 29 of them can easily become accidents. Yep. <laughs> So it um it's it's a great scene, really really well done, and the the acting of it was is just phenomenal. It's just, it if that's if that's and especially if that's a scene where like how you brought up earlier, if you turn on the TV and that's where it's at, yeah, like there's no way you're not drawn in. But that's kind of <laughs> the the great thing about that scene though is is the fact that all he negotiates for is just like some ice cold beer, yeah, like for the the inmates who who tarred the roof. And then, they, but they, when they show it later on, like after they'd finished, he kind of just went off and sat by himself while everybody else was drinking. And even one of the inmates who like previously didn't really know what, like didn't trust him or whatever, goes and grabs a beer and walks over and tries to hand it to him. And he's just like, oh, no, nope. good. Because, and, and the reason why that he actually denied, because uh, some people um, kind of forget the beginning and whatnot. Because I, even myself, I usually skip the entire opening scene up until the part where red walks into the parole office. That's about where I start in. Yeah. Just cause you know, the beginning part is, you know, a little bit monotonous to me. It's boring. But, um, during the montage that his trial is going on, uh, Andy Dufresne is actually sitting in his car getting extremely drunk and he yeah. does have a gun in his hand. And so the night that he found his wife, you know, murdered and whatnot, he was, he, he was, was drunk. drunk. He was extremely drunk and whatnot. So from there on out, he, laid off of it when I saw that's why he denied his own beer that he negotiated for yeah. and put his life on the line for. So yeah. it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's a neat scene that once you realize that it's kind of one of those aha moments. And you know, there's, there's a lot of them in this movie that that's well, and it was even truly more, makes it great. It was even more layered than that. It's like, he knew that he could get on the good side, like of the, well, of the guards. He knew that he could get on the good side of, of the prisoners and he could do something. But then on top of that, he did it just so he could feel normal. Yep. And so it has like all of these other effects. And it was such a simple thing for him to do. He's like, I can use my skill set. And, you know, maybe he didn't plan it out like that. But he, he's like, I can use my skill set and I can help these people out. I can get some goodwill with everybody and I can feel like a normal person for once. Yep. And, and brilliant. It's a brilliant maneuver. Yep. And it, and it completely snowballs into him doing taxes for the entire prison as yep. well as another prison whatnot. Um, helps his buddy Red get out of the wood shop from one month out of the year to, you know, help him with all the files and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, just opens up this whole whole entire list of possibilities for Andy to be able to do to help occupy his time, uh, you know, with him serving life in this prison. So you, you get all this and you get, you know, a little bit more character. You definitely develop a, uh, a really big friendship between, uh, red and Andy at this mm -hmm. point. Um, and, uh, so then, uh, the next really crazy scene that you, you actually get to see, um, kind of what Andy has been going through, you know, the last couple of years, because you get the, the big scene uh, when they go and uh, watch the movie mm -hmm. uh, together and whatnot with Rita Hayworth and uh, the sisters come and, and take him into the, the projector room and whatnot. And they, they try to do their stuff doing whatnot. Luckily he overcomes it. And, uh, and whatnot, but he gets, he gets sent to the infirmary for the month and everything like that. And uh, the, the, the uh, lead sister Boggs, he gets sent to the hole, but because of him helping the guards in that one moment, mm -hmm. the guards then take Boggs and they beat the living crap out of him uh, so badly that he is just basically paralyzed for life and taken away. And then Andy is free of his, of his torture. Yeah. So like it, that one pivotal scene on the roof, it became a life changer for Andy on the inside. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was really, really neat to see that scene. Life changer for the other dude too. That too. That too, <laughs> and in horrible, horrible ways. Yeah, but like, but that scene is also really well done. That scene is like, I remember, I remember, I was in college. I think it was a freshman in college. The first time I watched Shawshank, and I remember feeling like a very big sense of uneasement when Boggs is crawling out of his cell, 
and then he's dragged back in by his legs and it's that side view and you just see him like disappear into his cell and mm-hmm. it's just like this it was just really unnerving to watch i yeah. i never i'll never forget that and i very few movies you know can have that effect on you and it's just that was one of those scenes for me it was just awesome yeah yeah i totally agree yeah. Uh, not to mention that actor is uh he is a solid like character actor he shows up in a bunch of different random movies of of the day and uh but he he doesn't always play a bad guy but man when he does he's really good at it. i mean the casting for this whole film you know as we as as we stated right in the beginning we can't imagine this film in any other way than what it is and i mean you can say that about any film but definitely like this one is like concrete that is set in Every yeah. every supporting actor, even if they only had like it two or three perfectly lines, cast, perfectly cast. Yeah. So it so uh, we can fast forward here a little bit and whatnot. We're gonna go a little bit further into the story. We're gonna um, introduce the the young guy Tommy. So at this point, um, yeah. Andy has built up the library um, into the best prison state library that um, in the uh, eastern part of the U.S. Um, he has become the warden's key person for um, all of his side hustles that he has going on. He's got a river of dirty money running through the prison, and Andy is working it to where he is um, laundering the money, basically. And uh, he he does all this because he has created a false identity mm-hmm. and uh, to to process the money and everything like that. And that is a, a very pivotal point and key thing to remember uh, by the time we reach the end of this. So um, the this young kid gets brought into the prison by the name of Tommy, and uh, Mitch pointed out that he is a very uh, Elvis esque type personality with yeah. how his hair is and the how he greaser dresses. look. Yes, exactly. Um, so he comes in prison. He immediately makes friends with Andy and his whole crew and uh, becomes one of them really quickly. And, um, you know, even though, and let's see, uh, Andy helps him get his GED, which he has done with uh, multiple previous inmates. He's kind of become like the mentor of the prison per se. He's so, created a very good name for himself. Just found out some interesting little tidbit about Tommy. And what is that? The original actor that was cast to play him. Please tell me it was the Fonz. Brad Pitt. Oh, no way. A young Brad Pitt. But he dropped out. To, to do what? When did no, this no, no, come no. out? No, no, no. He didn't do. He didn't drop out to do something else. He dropped out because something else became super popular at the time. Which was? Thelma and Louise. And he was in that. And so because Thelma and Louise became super popular, he figured, why would I want to do like this smaller part when I can go and like do like a bigger movie? And that's exactly which, what he did. Come to find out, no matter which one he did, it would have been equally as big. And yes. He still would but have still, been. He would have still been just as popular as he is today. Still, Brad Pitt <laughs> in that part probably would have been pretty decent, but. Decent, but I don't think Brad Pitt could pull off Greaser. Nah, unless they nah. would have changed his appearance if it was Brad Pitt. Uh, and as we said, like every supporting actor, like they pulled the, I, I can't imagine Brad Pitt. You know, if they kept, you know, Tommy as like the same kind of look and like personality, I don't know if Brad Pitt would have been able to really, you know, convince me, man. So I'm, I'm looking at this, like, uh, so some of the actors that they had considered for other things, uh, like Gene Hackman, Robert Duvall, uh, for the role of Andy Dufresne, like really, like, I mean, I get it, but whatever. Uh, they tried to get Clint Eastwood and Paul Newman uh, were considered for other roles, but then like they kind of went on other ones. Tom Cruise, Tom Hanks, and Kevin Costner were offered and passed on the role. Uh, uh, it was Hanks. Let's see. Uh, it's funny that Hanks passed on this role because then later on in life, he went on to do the green mile, which yes. is another Stephen King story. If I'm correct. Yes. Uh, so like since Shawshank came out in 94, mm-hmm. like it, it's really kind of funny because they, they, uh, uh, like each one of them passed for different reasons, like on, on why they, they, uh, weren't actually going to, to be in the movie. Uh, mainly like, Oh crap. Where was it? I was just, I just saw it. I just saw it and it was so annoying. Maybe I can find Tom Hanks. So yeah, Tom Hanks uh, was was offered it, but he turned it down so he could do Forrest Gump. <laughs> Which uh, okay, that worked out well for him. 
<laughs> Costner turned it down because he was doing Waterworld. Which a lot of people will disagree with, but I know that myself and Brian Amos are very grateful he it's did. One, it's, one of the, it's one of those movies, man, that like, that's one of those movies I could watch. Like, Mad Max on water? Why wouldn't I want to watch that? Jesus. Dennis, Dennis Hopper is a bad guy? No way. Yeah. Uh, so they they had had like, uh, like, they offered it to Johnny Depp, Nicolas Cage, and Charlie Sheen for different roles. Yeah, I mean, like, it's just, it's kind of crazy what they actually went through to to uh, be these different parts. Uh, see, James Gandolfini was uh, originally offered the role for Boggs. Which, that okay, that would have been okay. I'd have been okay with that. That would have been fine, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure that, that James Gandolfini would have wanted to play, you know, a, a prison sister. rapist. Yeah, but, probably not. But uh, he would have done his best. But the cool thing, though, is that Bob Gunton, the guy, the warden. Yeah. He got the job because of his role in Demolition Man. Ah, as the police chief. Yeah, and he was so good in that role, too. He was. So, yeah, like, it's kind of crazy just to think about, like, the the sheer number of people that they offered the the roles to before finally somebody was like, hey, uh, this guy Tim Robbins, like, he was just in this other movie. I think think he was in um, The Hudsucker Proxy. And, like, so people saw him in that, and somebody was like, I think that he'd be great as this character. Yeah, so, like, at this time, like, Tim Robbins, he was, I, I feel, in my opinion, he was definitely still developing and, like, you know, kind of, like, planting his feet in Hollywood. I don't think he was a, you know, like, solid A-list actor at, the, at this moment. You know, I feel like he was kind of a, yeah. kind of like, like how Keanu Reeves was not a first pick for speed. And, you know, they, they took the gamble on him, and obviously it paid off. And I feel like this is Tim Robbins' speed. Like, it you know, really, you know, shot him up and and projected him forward and everything like that. Apparently Tim Robbins actually uh, prepared for the role by uh, going and observing animals that were in cages, uh, spending some time in solitary confinement and uh, spoke with prisoners and guards and actually had his arms and legs shackled. All right. Which would explain why his walk was like so on point with it. You know, like, you know, during the opening scene, but also like, you know, like even further into the film, just how he walks around the prison and whatnot. Like, you know, that's, that's really excellent to learn. That's awesome. Yeah. I love those little tidbits. All right. Back to the plot. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so anyway, so you got this young kid that basically Andy is taken under his wing. He, you know, helps the kid, um, you know, get his GED. He starts him out with really basic, like elementary learning his ABCs and everything. Uh, the kid gets it and, um, one day, uh, Red and Tommy are uh, sitting there in the wood shop, just kind of hanging out, chilling, and uh, sharing stories. And Tommy asks him uh, what exactly uh, Andy was in prison for. He said double murder. And Tommy didn't believe him. And um, Red explained, you know, the story of, like, you know, how uh, Andy, you know, like who Andy killed and whatnot. And there's just this sheer look on, like, kind of like defeat and just like fear on Tommy's face and mm-hmm. kind of like his skin goes white like you just saw a ghost and like you like you just feel his stomach sink in that one scene yeah and so red goes to get Andy and Tommy then um, lays some deep hard knowledge on him that uh, one of his uh, previous uh, roommates at a different prison was uh was actually the guy that killed uh, Andy's wife and the lover and pinned it on him and everything like that and so Andy, you know, Andy knew he didn't do it, but there's no way for him to prove it. Now he has the proof that he needs mm-hmm. and he goes to the warden with it and, uh, the, does not go the way he expects the warden throws him into solitary confinement for a month. And then, um, he gets his, uh, uh lead guard to, uh, bring the kid out, admit what he said and murder him in cold blood just to keep Andy where he is. Because as we stated before, Andy is the warden's money man. That mm-hmm. is, uh, that is how the warden keeps his money flowing through the prison and all of his, you know, cons up to date and everything like that. And so he he doesn't want Andy dead, but he wants he wants to keep Andy in, under his thumb. So this is a a really big flex move for the warden. It's also a very uh, cold hearted and depressing scene. You know, that's a uh, you know for for it being early nineties, that was a. Uh, crazy scene to be shot you know getting shot in the back like that and everything they yeah that, with it being stephen king one out they they definitely show it and whatnot and uh you're you're, you're then your stomach drops again watching this you know nice young kid get killed 
Yeah. And uh, goes goes back to Andy in solitary confinement so they can let him know, hey, he's dead. And this is the warden paying him a personal visit. Yeah, that is it is a <laughs> scary scene. You know, because he's basically just like, if if you and he, he says it, he's like he's like basically if you don't fall in line, he's like he's like I will I will give you the worst prison sentence like of your life. Yep. He's like I will throw you down into the dregs with the sodomites. Yeah. Like and basically, I'm gonna throw you all the people who. Hey, oh, hey, what is what's the line? He says it'll be like you were. It'll be like you were fucked by a freight train. Yeah, <laughs> that's what it was. So um, it is. It, just eerie scene and you, and uh and actually uh Mitch in, in in his review he hit the nail on the head with this uh with this comparison you you see Andy's shield get chipped in this scene yep like in this in this whole process like you definitely see is uh he 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 takes a gut hit he, his shield gets b- broken a little bit and he just completely sort of just crumbles for a little bit yeah um, and, uh, you, this is th- like the pivotal point of the film though. When Andy finally gets out of solitary confinement, he has decided he has had enough. Mm-hmm. He is completely turned off from everything. He is not wanting to, you know, play the games anymore. He's, he's not, he's not willing to wait, to wait this term out anymore. So, uh, he, he talks to red about it. He said that I've paid for his mistakes and then some, he goes, but I'm done with it. And, uh, he says one of the probably the most quoted line of the whole movie to read you get busy living or get busy dying. Yeah. And, uh, and if it's your first time watching it, you, you don't know what he'll, what he's going to do with that sort of line yeah. right there because Be- you, because of the establishment of Brooks. Yes. Beforehand. When, when the older gentleman gets out of prison, he doesn't know how to cope with being outside of prison yep. and, and resorts to hanging himself. Right. The term that they use in the film, which is definitely a term still, to this day, 100% relevant, he is institutionalized. Mm-hmm. He knows no other way to live life other than inside the walls of the prison. Yeah, he spent 50 years in, in prison. Which is, unfortunately, over half of what some people's lives are. Yes, you know, it's, and he, he that's was an old man when he finally got out. So, yeah, so he, he does that, and now all of his friends are just really weird. They have never seen Andy like this. Mm-hmm. You know, the way he has built himself up from what he was when he first got there. Yeah, he, he, he's, he's presenting as a completely broken man. Right. So now we get to the feel-good part of this whole story. You know, you, you've had some, like, you know, some little speckles and moments and whatnot. It's like, like the first two-thirds of the film, like, that's your Infinity Wars, if you will. <laughs> yeah you know that's your you get some speckles of hope some you know a little bit of glimmer some some really good laughs and whatnot but it is you know at that point it is definitely gloom and doom so then andy develops his end game and i know i'm making a lot of marvel references right now but i just can't help it i'm still riding the wave so uh he uh he develops a little plan and uh you still don't know what it is and whatnot and then um it goes into the following morning and he does not come out of his cell. Nope. And I swear to God, the first time I watched it, I thought I thought this turned into some sort of like Jesus miracle or whatever like that. Like somehow, like he just like left. Walked like, through <laughs> walls. <laughs> I, I don't know what I was like. I don't know what I was thinking. Like I was just I was so young. I never seen it. And you know, like I, at that point, I definitely did not have any other movies under my belt that like I had reference to or whatever like that. I'm like, oh my god, he pulled some really spiritual shit out of his ass, and he just like just vanished out of prison or, or something like that. And uh, so it, it of course causes, you know, widespread chaos in the prison and the warden is hella pissed. Yeah. And uh, cause he opens up his shoe box to find Andy's dusty ass prison shoes in there. And you hear the alarm sound and whatnot. And uh, you, you finally now get, if you knew what the, as you stated, the title of the book was Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank prison whatnot you'll you'll know that andy has kept posters of girls in his cell which is not uncommon you know yeah. eye, eye candy and whatnot and just something for wall decoration and whatnot but in, in warden's big old temper tantrum of thinking everyone is conspiring against him he starts throwing some chess pieces at everybody and throws one at the poster and it goes directly through it, and you just hear it clank all the way down in the far distance, and you realize Andy has tunneled his way out of the prison. Yes. <laughs> Using a very, very tiny rock hammer. 
which as uh, Re- as Red stated, it, it would take six hundred years to to do it. Andy did it in just under twenty. Yep, <laughs> almost down to the nub. Yeah, and uh, it was it's just that awesome feel good part of it, and you get this whole montage of exactly how he implicated his plan, what he did. And I mean, it, it is up there with like escape from Alcatraz genius. Yeah. <laughs> like, like Clint Eastwood would be proud of this. Like, this is it, awesome. Well, it's like when he's, when he's in the pipes and stuff, when they show him actually escaping. Yeah. Like he times the hits on the pipe with the thunder, like from the storm. Which to me, like, that's the only part that I'm kind of like, eh, about because that's luck. Like if there was no storm that night that he wanted to do it. Well, I think that was, he waited for a storm. Oh, okay. I didn't even think about it like that. Yeah. That makes sense. I think, I think he just waited, you know, like to, to find out when, you know, when a storm would actually come. That we had some and, noise for cover. Yeah. And like, especially, I mean, even if it was just raining, he could, he could have done something to, right. to do that. But, but yeah, he, he times it all down and like, and that shot too of him in that pipe. I mean, he, I'm not a very claustrophobic person. That scene makes me very uncomfortable. Yeah. With how he has to like, you know, you. Because you, you're used to kind of like an army crawl being able to move both shoulders forward. And, you know, he just he's only able to have that one forward. And I could only imagine how cramped and tired that, like, that Tim one Robbins arm and that, that shoulder is, you know, going through all that. Because uh, what was the what was the length that he did? Five football fields, wasn't it? Something, yeah, it was something yeah. like that. Yeah, it was, you know, 500, you know, over 500 yards or something like that. And it's just like... That is a long time to be face down in a river of shit. <laughs> yeah. But uh, he escapes, and then you get you get the other kind of snowball effect from earlier in the film because he was the money man. Yeah. And he created all this stuff under, you know, a fake name and everything like that. He, he got clean because he escaped during the night. So by the morning when all the banks opened up, they found him missing. He starts cleaning out the warden. Yep. He walks in with fresh driver's license, social security card, everything spot on match for the signature. And Lord, is it just awesome. Yeah. Super liberating. If I, if I were to watch in theaters with the right crowd, I bet we would like cheer when that moment happened. It would just be awesome. Yeah. I just, uh, that entire setup is like, man, he really did plan all of this out. And, you know, but it's, you know, Red, you know, explains that, you know, prison time is slow time. Man Mm -hmm. will do just about anything to keep his mind busy. Yeah. And like, you know, yes, I'm sure that like there's probably 90% of the prison population that is like going to like try to think of a way to escape, but to do it the way he did. Yeah. With that much, you know, meticulous planning and detail, like that's, that's no small feat. And it's, uh, it's one of those things where he, he deserved, he deserved the escape he got. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, so he gets wrapped up, and uh, you know you get this, you get this kind of little bittersweet montage of of Red narrating about you know him missing his friend and and you know what he's doing, how he shares stories with other inmates about you know when he was in prison with them and whatnot. And uh, this is a long film; it's you know like two and a half, two hours and forty minutes long. But it, a it does not feel like that at all when you watch it, and you know for it being a, a drama. You know, it, it, it flies by pretty quick. And by the time you reach it, you're like, oh, my God, like so much has happened. How are we already here? You know, I feel that every time I watch this and it's just absolutely ridiculous. Yes. So um, essentially, you know, uh, you, you get to red and whatnot and he finally makes his parole and he makes it in such a spectacular way by he actually gets it by mouthing off to the parole board. Well, it, it's <laughs> it's a reese. It's set up from the very beginning when right. he's at the parole board and he's just like, yep, I'm completely reformed. I'm never going to be a threat to anybody, blah, blah, blah. You can absolutely let me out. Let me out, folks. Hey. <laughs> and then, uh, and then like he goes back around and then when he's up for parole again, he's basically just like, I am a criminal. Like I did bad things. It's like, and like, and, and like, because he's actually honest with them, that's when they grant him parole. Right. He, he's finally not saying what they want to hear. He's finally saying what he needs and wants to say. Yeah. So he finally makes parole and, and this is another bittersweet moment. You find out that he's leading the same life that Brooks was when he, yes. when he got out working the same, same grocery same job. store. He's in the same, uh, halfway house, even in the same apartment, yeah. which is like, cause super depressing. Yeah. Cause he sees, he sees the Brooks was here <laughs> yep. on the roof or on the, the, the thing up on the, the ceiling. And yeah, it's like you, you keep thinking like, Oh my God, like is, 
is Red going to go the same way as Brooks? Right. No. No. So he, he, he remembers the deal he made with Andy. He goes and buys a bus ticket because Andy directs him to some money that he left once he made his escape. Mm-hmm. And they meet up in Zaywataneo. Yes. Very now fame, probably famous town just for that movie. Yeah. But uh, I tell you what, that is probably and the shot of that scene. A is probably one of the most beautiful scenes I've ever seen in a film. Like just like the setup of it and everything. But I think a part of it also has like that, uh, that reaction to it because you know, the color scheme of the whole film, obviously being in the prison and all their, you know, uniforms are gray and everything like that. Then you finally get this, bright bright blue ocean mm-hmm. and and you get this feel getting of the two friends being reunited and everything like that and it's just you get to that point you're like ah this is awesome yeah. and and like that that feeling never changed like it is still just as strong now watching it so as the first time so tim robbins actually once said that the movie is uh is a uniquely non-sexual love story between two men <laughs> i'm like <laughs> Actually, that makes a lot it's, of sense. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> like, that makes a lot of sense to me. Like, but it just it cracks me up because I, I just read that and I was like, oh yeah. But he, but you know, he. It, it also makes sense though as to why it becomes that because you know you think you think about your coworkers. You know, you spend yeah. you spend forty hours a week with the same people. In prison, you spend. Close to, you know, the entire day, seven days a week for how many years, you know, and it's just like you're only, it's inevitable to develop that bond with somebody. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and boy, did like Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman, they completely nailed it. And like just for an ending scene, having no dialogue and no words, they hit that emotion dead on the head with just pure happiness that they, that they both finally got out and that they, get to live out the rest of their days, mm-hmm. you know, doing something free, you know, that they, you know, when they were in prison that they could have only dreamed of. So the, the person, before we get into any more cast, before you get into some other side note details, cause yeah. I know you still got a few to hit on. Yeah. I want you to talk about the director of this film because I'm not sure people realize who the director of this film is. Cause He's obviously very popular today with a show that he has going on. Yes. <laughs> so uh, this would be Frank Darabont. Yes. Uh, I hope I'm saying that that right. I believe. Yes. Yeah, so I, that's how I was. So to. Frank, like I said, originally he did a movie, uh, like a student film with a Stephen King story called "The Woman in the Room." Okay. Stephen King loved it, and then Frank inquired to him about. Uh, getting the rights to Shawshank Redemption to which Stephen King was like, yeah, sure. Do what you want. And so he pay, he was paid a thousand dollars for the rights to Shawshank Redemption. That's all Stephen King was paid was a thousand bucks. Thousand bucks. Wow. He never cashed the check. He kept it. And when the movie became insanely popular, he framed it and sent it back to Frank and said with the line, in case you ever need bail money, <laughs> Steve, <laughs> Steve, <laughs> Mr. King. Well, like even even in interviews that I've seen, Frank still calls him Steve. Like he doesn't call him Stephen King because apparently, like that's the thing. Like Stephen King is the author, right? Steve is the person, and Got so it. like they're friends in, okay. in real life, and so that's how they they talk to each other. Uh, but yeah, he did he uh, he did Shawshank Redemption in 1994. Then comes back like five years later to do The Green Mile. Which of course is another just another Stephen King like brilliant novel. Well, and it's also like and like and the Green Mile in and of itself is also a very still widely popular like just prison film. Yes, and that's another one of those like because of who it's written by. When well, yeah. you got that gloom and doom, but you also got that feel good aspect to it. Yeah, you know, I think we just need another it. Stephen King prison story now, though. <laughs> uh, just, just one more needs to happen. Oh, like soon, like yeah. like a new movie, like a new one. Yeah, get Frank to direct that one too. Get- <laughs> uh, so after he did the Green Mile, which is another brilliant one, and that's 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 definitely it's less of like a prison story and more of like a. There, I mean, there's sort of like a spiritual aspect to it, and there's like a bunch of other stuff involved as well. I don't know, but it's it it's, still has it's a lot more of, of the really guards. Big, it's more yes. of the guards. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Instead of it being, I get what you're saying. Instead yeah, of yeah. like the prison itself, yeah. It's and it, even the, then, it's only one particular part of the prison. It's right. death row. Yeah, 
so after he did uh, the Green Mile, comes back in 2001, does The Majestic, which is actually a brilliant film if you haven't seen it. I think it's underrated. I think that one kind of it, flew under the radar. Yeah. Like, uh, it, well, you know, it's because people saw Jim Carrey in it, and they're like, oh, it's it's a Jim Carrey funny movie. No. And it's not. No. Like, he's funny in it. There are funny bits. But it is a it is a hard drama. Right. And it's it's like, uh, it's it's kind of amazing, actually, uh, just like how it all, how, how that movie all develops. I feel like people had that same response when Adam Sandler and Don Cheadle did Rain Over Me. Like, mm-hmm. they expected Adam Sandler type S comedy. And it wasn't. No, but dear Lord, is that movie also brilliant? Yeah. And like excellent acting. But anyway, go. So go after on, that, go on, after, Mr. Frank, after the majestic, he comes back, uh, like six years later with the mist, which is a crazy good horror story with, with actually one of the, the hardest, roughest endings to watch in a movie. And if you haven't seen it or don't know anything about it, go and check it out. It is like, I don't know how anybody could have gone to see that movie in theaters and not just bawled their eyes out at the end. Well, that's that's horrifying. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to have to watch and that's it, a that's horror horrifying. movie. That's a horror movie. <laughs> that they cry. But, yeah. Uh, so then after that, the boy jumps over to doing The Walking Dead. Yeah. Boom. Just just so you know, the, the director of The Shawshank is also the, the director of your beloved Walking Dead TV series. And then he also went off and did uh, Mob City, and he's been working on a bunch of other stuff ever since then. But so yeah, he's he's been uh, he's the, he's been going strong for a good long while now, and it looks like he's it seems to be he's smart with what he chooses to work with, and he also he he seems to invest pretty well in production for what he does. It's not he's also a writer too, which means that he's been working on other scripts and, and stuff. Okay, so he uh like so going through his actual filmography, he worked on Nightmare on Elm Street three, Dream Warriors. Uh, the Blob. He did. Uh, he wrote Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, The Salton Sea, and Collateral. He was a producer. On. Wow! So Stephen King and Wes Craven. Yeah, that is highly impressive. So I, I just want to make sure that you know any of our viewers out there, if they if they hadn't got around to checking him out yet, they definitely have a reason now to to go back and watch these. Yes, because more than likely they watch The Walking Dead. Yes, that and, is true. And they more than likely like it. So, There's a reason why you like it, because he is brilliant yes. and awesome. All right, so let's go ahead and uh, and go into some of the other cast here, though. Okay. Let's just start with the top. Let's start with Tim Robbins. Tim Robbins. Husband of Susan Sarandon. That is, we'll talk about power couple. Yeah, power <laughs> acting couple. Um, I I believe it or not, I one of my first roles that I remember Tim Robbins in, other than this, would have to be High Fidelity. Yeah, he was so good in High Fidelity. He was really good in The Hudsucker Proxy, too. We talked about that right. movie before. I really freaking love that movie, and its soundtrack is amazing, too. But I just, you know, it, his role in High Fidelity is just both quirky and awkward, yet yet funny. And you could tell that he was a good sport, like, when, like during, like, filming or whatever like that. Yeah, yeah. And I just love knowing, like, when actors, like, when they get roles like that, they just like, yeah, whatever, I'll just roll with it sort of thing. You know, because when you like most of his films are, you know, majority of them were not, you know, everyone kind of finds their niche and, and he falls into his niche in quite a few films. And this was very outside of his box. And aside from that movie, just being absolutely brilliant in and of itself, like he uh, he nailed his part. In it. And that's uh, that one in Shawshank are like my my two big films that, you know, are yeah. under my belt for Tim Robbins. Uh, I will give it to him for. uh I mean, obviously he brilliant in Shawshank Redemption, but I mean he's good in a, in a bunch of other stuff, including uh, he's in you know Bull Durham, uh, Mystic River, uh, Mystic River. That he it is hard to watch him in that one, yeah, because uh, that you want to talk about another sad movie. I mean, but then he had like a bunch of other smaller roles, like Mission to Mars, and then like he did High Fidelity, which was another like yep. small role. Uh, did a couple of romantic comedies that were pretty decent. Um, but here's kind of the funny thing for me. And I didn't know this. And I mean, mind you, I've watched the movie like a thousand times. Mm-hmm. Dude was in Top Gun. The hell was he in Top Gun? Merlin. <laughs> no way. He was, he was, <laughs> he was Merlin. He was Tom Cruise's <laughs> like uh, co-pilot. Like, or, or whatever. I forgot what position they actually call that, but he was, yeah, he was the, the second one in, in 
in there when he's having the whole thing and he's like, stay with me, goose, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's like, that's all Merlin. And he's too tall for that plane anyway. Oh God. Yes. And so like, yeah, they, they really like had to, had to figure out a way to finagle him into the cockpit <laughs> because it's just like he, yeah, he had no business being tuck there. his knees to his but then, chest or something like put him in a cannonball. The, the thing is that you never notice it because his face is covered up the entire time until the very, very end when he shows up and he like gives, gives Maverick a hug. Right. And you're like, Holy crap. That's Tim Robbins crazy yeah you recognize the voice but yeah it just it, it was so amazing to me when i actually first found that out it after watching the shawshank i remember also seeing him in arlington road yeah that is that's a hard transformation because you know you he's you feel good roles or just you know regular kind of uh you know just run of the mill but to see him as a bad guy and whatnot yeah. and you know that was that was kind of out of his realm too but he he nails it, and I part of me, part of me wish he had done a little bit more bad guy stuff. Yeah, I feel like he definitely has the maniacal, you know, like smart guy. He could be a really he was good bad bo- in antitrust. Yeah, I feel like he could be a good Bond villain. He He'd, would be a pretty decent Bond villain, actually. I, obviously, you know, not, not a lot of action, but, but a lot of Bond villains don't do a lot of action. No, because they're more mental stuff. You yeah. Know? Uh, let's go ahead and move on to the man who who. Hold what? on before what? we before we leave Tim Robbins here. What? Him and Martin Lawrence and nothing to lose. Well, of course, nothing to lose. <laughs> God. You want to talk about one of the greatest 90s comedies ever concocted. That's a great one, actually. <laughs> that is just that is just an hour and 40 minutes of one-liners. <laughs> yeah, it's really good, actually. All right, so now let's move on to the man that basically became a living meme, Morgan Freeman. Uh, it, yeah. This man is is one of the greatest actors of our age. I, I don't really even feel that I need to talk much about him, but I will give this one little tidbit as far as relation to Shawshank Redemption goes. And what would this that was be? well, this was the first one, the first movie that he ever did where he narrated. Okay, and so this is the thing that spawned everything else of him narrating. And then uh, on top of that, if you didn't know, in in the parole hearing, they show a picture of him. When he was first arrested, a young version of him, it's, it was his son. Wow. That's awesome. His son looked so much like him at that age that like they, they just used that picture of him instead. Hey. I thought they'd just used like an old photo of, of the, that's act, what I thought uh, too. Morgan Freeman, but they didn't. Nope. Son. Well, look at that. There you go. All right. Let's go ahead and move on to Bob Gunton. Bob Gunton is of course, uh, he plays the warden and has been on, uh, bunch of different things but mainly demolition man and shawshank redemption are like my two, two oh top absolutely picks for him. well oh well then just to give, give it a bronze medal to something the third uh film for me for that actor would have to be broken arrow yeah um basically because he he you know i mean he nails his niche with that with that guy that you kind of love to hate in a sense because mm-hmm. like the police chief and, and demolition man it's not that you really like hated him, but you definitely didn't like him. Not like you liked other characters that you got yeah. introduced to this film. You definitely didn't like him, obviously, but broken arrow. You definitely, he was just that annoying older guy. And he had one of the coolest deaths in that film. When, <laughs> when John Travolta just takes that club and just hits him directly in the heart with it. And John Travolta just goes crazy. He does that little hush, hush, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But uh, he he's definitely he's got his uh he's got his roots in Hollywood. He's been in a lot of stuff. So let's go ahead and do a couple more here and get to uh we'll we'll, we'll get down to some stuff here. So uh, William Sadler, who uh, played Haywood, he he was the one who was always uh. When, whenever they would get into the like, oh, what'd you do? It's like, oh, don't you know all of these men are innocent? And uh, you're like, hey, hey, Wood, what happened to you? Lawyer fucked me. Yeah. So, <laughs> like, he uh, he's one of those guys that shows up. He usually plays a bad guy in a lot of different things, like henchmen type stuff. But he's he's a solid actor, man. I'd like to see him uh, in in some uh, 
And, some, uh, some really good stuff. But if you didn't know, he was in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He was President Ellis. Well, there you go. He uh, he was also um, the one of the main villains in Die Hard 2. Yes. He played Death in Bill and Ted's Bogus Adventure. He is also reprising his role what? as Death in Bill and Ted's 3. Which is going to be amazing. I don't care oh, what anybody amazing. says. It's going to be brilliant, and it's going to be the best movie of the year. <laughs> going to win best um, movie of the year. And he actually, uh, a big start... Um, of his career, he did a he did a crap ton of theater uh, to get his uh, his look, a legacy, if you were a star or not. But uh, a big thing that I remember from he also um, he had a bit part in uh, three or four episodes of the first season of Roseanne. If you oh, didn't know that, I did not. Uh, know that. He was uh, one of Dan's like construction buddies, oh. and uh, of course nails it. He does, you know, he because he's only he was only a little bit younger in that when you know before this came out. So I think next on the list uh, you'd have to go with uh, Hadley. The warden's uh, top guard, Clancy Brown. Clancy Brown. You want to talk about solid actor? Solid. This man does practically everything. Just for those of you who don't know this man, if you ever want to, you got to look up his his little scorecard on that. He's got just shy of two hundred and eighty movies. Yes, under his belt, he just two hundred and eighty just keeps doing more. <laughs> and then on top of that, while simultaneously still recording uh, for SpongeBob SquarePants. Yeah, he's just, Mr. Krabs. If you didn't know, just in case you know he needed more money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's only because so, I believe he's been Mr. Krabs since the start. Yeah, yeah. He has. So since ni- so since 1999, he he's been a part of one of the largest kids cartoon franchises. He, he and plays the the literally hardest ass in this movie. <laughs> but the thing, of course, that we would have to talk about, would, besides his role in Shawshank Redemption, is his role in Highlander. <laughs> the greatest movie ever made. <laughs> the greatest? The greatest movie ever I made. I wish we were doing a video podcast. Like the intensity in your eyes right now talking about Highlander. Highlander it's not like anything I've ever seen. Highlander is just one of those movies that's like it is ingrained into my soul. <laughs> I've seen it like just a ton of times. Christopher Lambert is brilliant despite the fact that he does the worst Scottish accent of all time. <laughs> But Clancy Brown as the Kurgan is one of the best villains ever ever portrayed on film ever because you know exactly what he is. You know exactly what he wants to do and you know exactly how he's going to do it in the most brutal and efficient way that he possibly can. He's like the Thanos of Highlander. He is. (laughs) He wants the quickening so he can dominate the universe. It's that simple. Boom. Like... (laughs) Highlander. Highlander. Such a good Clancy movie. Brown for the win. And then and then to follow up Highlander with the most craptastic movie of all time, <laughs> Highlander 2. <laughs> boggles my mind, man. It's like how you can go from greatness to like such complete and utter drivel. That's not his fault. I'm sure it's not his fault. No. Yeah. But Clancy Brown did nothing. He, he wasn't in the second movie anyway, so it's not like it matters. There you go. If he had been, would have been a better movie. So yeah, that's Clancy Brown. Let's do a uh, Gil Bellows who played Tommy. Uh, the thing that I actually remember him from was more so uh, Ally McBeal because he was the main love interest in Ally McBeal. He was, wasn't he? It's it's been a quick minute since I've watched that. Yeah, but he's one of those actors that kind of like shows up in a bunch of different random stuff. You know, just sort of hey, we need we need like a you know a particular white guy to do this part, and then he ends up in that part. That's really about it. But apparently he's been working on, uh, let's see, uh, Patriot, the, the the TV show that's been running since 2015. That's been his primary thing. But he's been doing a bunch of different movies and stuff as well. And then uh, let's see, what else? I don't know. We, I guess we can do like two more, right? Let's go with uh, the guy who played Boggs, Mark Rolston. Mark Rolston uh, has... The, the first thing that I remember him in was Aliens. Yes. As Drake. Yep. Loved that character. I mean, that, and that's a that was a solid sequel. I mean, they, they they fell apart a little bit near the end, but I felt I felt Aliens was a, a pretty darn good sequel. Did did you ever hear the story, though, about the pitch for Aliens? I can't say that I have. So we James Cameron, right, shows up and he's like, hey, I'm gonna do I'm gonna do this sequel, right? They said he walked into uh Walked into the pitch meeting, you know, for, for all of this, you know, with all of these executives and stuff like that, walks up to the whiteboard and writes the word alien. 
and then stands there for a second and then writes a dollar sign at the end. Aliens. And, and that was his pitch. Woo! And he got it. <laughs> and it was awesome. And then he went to Britain to make the movie, had one of the worst experiences of his life fighting the crew, and still made one of the best action movies ever made. Wow. There you go. There you go. So the more, you know, yes. So he's just, he's one of these guys. Also, he shows up doing stuff. He's done a ton of voice acting. Uh, he's done a, a, a bunch of TV shows and a bunch of movies. And like, he's just a great actor. And I, I really wish that I could see him be more prominent in some roles, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's what it is. It's the acting game. It, it, you know, the bigger people get bigger jobs. And then let's close this all out with James Whitmore. Oh, holy crap. Sorry. Just had a big aha moment. He was in Lethal Weapon 2. Yes. And it, it took me a minute to realize what character it was. All right. So James Whitmore. Uh, he was born Brooks. in 1921. Lived a long life. He ended up dying in 2009 at the age of 87 in Malibu. Uh, but his, his filmography, 159 credits. The last thing he did was in 2007 when he was on an episode of CSI, but he started, let's go. He started really early. Let's go all the way back. 1949. He did some TV stuff. He did the repertory theater and he did the undercover man. So let's see if he was born 21. So he was 28 outriders like asphalt jungle. I mean, just you name it, this boy did it and kept going and going and going. He was in Oklahoma. And it looks like... I don't, I don't know that he was in Oklahoma. From the looks of it, he uh, he was actually a pretty attractive young man. Oh, yeah. Uh, honestly, like, just he was one of those actors that, that just aged so great and just became such a, 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 a pillar of, like, just acting credentials. Like, I mean, having him on the set of Shawshank Redemption was probably an absolute treat to everybody around. Oh, him. I mean, that that's, you want to talk about learning experience, all the stories that he could tell. I well, mean, and you know, and he, he, you could definitely tell he still definitely had his intensity in that because, you know, during his, you know, like kind of like last stint to try and stay in the prison, you know, him holding that shiv up to, um, oh man, what's his face? William Sadler, I forgot yeah. his character's name, but yeah, you know, hold, holding that shiv up to his throat and everything like that, like you know, that was that was pretty intense for a man of his age to do and whatnot, and I, you know, super convincing to me. Yeah, yeah. So uh, here's the thing: the movie cost twenty five million dollars to make, right? I heard it bombed in box office, and it bombed. The opening weekend, it earned seven hundred and twenty seven thousand from thirty three feet uh, theaters. And uh, had an average of $22,000 per theater. And it just, like, it was going up against a bunch of other movies at the time, including Pulp Fiction. Yeah, you aren't going to win. Sorry. I don't uh, care how great you are. That one's greater. <laughs> and, and like, let's see. It, it received a, the whole release on October 14th, 1994, uh, to 944 theaters and earned $2.4 million on average, finishing as number nine, the number nine film of the weekend behind the sex comedy Exit to Eden. Wow. Yeah, which earned $3 million <laughs> at the time. And then that's where it died, and now it's only known to a few people. No, that's not what happened. It went to rentals where it became the most rented thing of 1995. The most rent, like the entire year, no matter what else came out, yeah. the most rented film. It, and there it spread and eventually made more than twice the amount that it cost in in the movie itself and became an absolute cult classic and phenomenon. And like, and like we stated, it is on IMDb's top 100 must-watch movies. Yeah, and not even you like just somewhere on the list. Out there? Like it's, it's high up on the list. Yeah. Like, you know how many movies are there? Top 100 must-watch movies. Yeah, it's like Citizen Kane, Shawshank Redemption. And it's like... And for a movie that bombed in box office, that yeah. literally didn't make a fraction of what it cost yeah. back, and it is up there. So, if if you have not just seen goes it, to show that it that you, great movies can pass you by. Yep. And so, yeah, if if somebody that you like is in a movie, and you know, to try to give it a chance, you never know what exactly you're going to get. Yeah. 
But so I think that's all I got for that. That's all I got too. So ranking, you want to rank it? Because I'm gonna I'm gonna give this movie a ten. You oh you're giving it a solid ten. Solid ten. I can watch this movie anytime, anywhere, Woo! at any point. Is that our first ten? Maybe I don't know. 10? It's my first ten. It's your like, first ten. Uh, well, the, b- before I give mine, I will I will do one last pitch for Mitch. Uh, he did give his score as well uh, for it. He gives it a solid nine. He goes, it's uh, it's not the best, but uh, you know if they don't get damn close to perfection here, yeah. And and I can agree with that because I'm sure that you know it, eventually if you really wanted to, you know, kind of like you know, like a scholar, you know, sit down and like try to find something. I'm sure you could. There, there are those things in every movie. Um, so, but I, I'm actually, I'm, I'm siding with Mitch on this one. I'm going to give it a solid nine as well. Sounds good to me. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's high up there and you know, we've can't express it enough. No matter where you come in at, you're going to sit down, you're going to walk, you're going to finish it. You, yeah. you are going to go right up until the credits roll. And uh, cannot tell you how many nights myself and Brian Amos have lost sleep on this movie, we we get back home, you know, from work or whatever like that, and we'll have already done our game and everything. We'll be winding down, and it's one thirty in the morning, and we'll be damned if we flip on a movie channel. It's only fifteen minutes into Shawshank Redemption, <laughs> <laughs> and there there goes yeah. three three thirty in the morning before you know it. I know the feeling. I so, know the feeling. But yeah, I it, go out and check this movie out if you have not seen it because. I mean, you should have already, but that's beside the point. All those who know and love this movie, yep. we all know it. This is a brilliant, brilliant film, but that is all I got. Remember, folks, uh, go and subscribe to the podcast so you get all of our updates and whatnot. Uh, and find us on any of our social media stuff, mainly Facebook. We like the Facebook. Yes, uh, the Facebook. And, uh, yeah, just get on there and interact with us and have some good old times. We will see you all next week. Thank you all again for tuning in. As, and, of course, don't forget to grab your popcorn. Popcorn.